Chorus, thank you so much for that. Whenever the chorus moves itself around the room, I wonder if I could somehow set up that they do that all the time and just sort of travel around me through space, (laughs) through my day, you know, hearing them sing such beautiful words. I want to welcome those of us who are joining us on Facebook Live right now. It is good to have you with us. And to thank John for so expertly diagnosing the problem with my microphone this morning, which was that I had turned it off. (laughs) It requires great technical expertise to keep up with my own foibles. Like many of you, perhaps, I have spent the last couple of days in different spaces of essentially resistance. I spent most of last night glued to Facebook, watching videos and looking at images of people all across the country, all actually around the world, including, did you see, 30 people marched in Antarctica, (laughs) which must be the entirety of the population in Antarctica. (laughs) And in some small towns, one person registered themselves as marching yesterday. Seeing these images, hearing the sounds of people rising up and making their voices heard. One chant in particular has been stuck in my head. I heard it, of course, at the march yesterday and also at the resistance unball that we had here at West on Friday night, and which I see we didn't quite get the disco ball down from hanging in our ceiling. <laughs> It's right right there in case we need to have a dance party in the middle of the platform. I don't know. One West staff member even heard this chant break out yesterday afternoon while she was doing her grocery shopping at Wegmans. Apparently women were there doing their shopping, women and men alike perhaps, wearing pink hats. And suddenly in the middle of the grocery store, someone shouted out, show me what democracy looks like. It has been going through my head, this chant. I'm a little worried with this particular one that my children will take it too much to heart. It is tricky to explain why we need democracy in our national decision-making, but um, benevolent dictatorship at home. You may be struggling with that as well. If you have a good line, please let me know. Yesterday was indeed an amazing outpouring of resistance and resilience after a day that felt like a tragedy to many. After the beginning of a presidency that has already been marked by lies, racism, xenophobia, and misogyny. A day that many folks I know felt like was the death of America, the betrayal of the American dream by the American people. To which I say, America is dead, long live America. You know that chant, too. It came from France in 1422, I learned, when Charles VI died and his son Charles VII ascended to the throne. And the cry at the coronation of Charles VII was, Le roi est mort, vive le roi. The king is dead, long live the king. It indicates that there's never a time without a king, that the inhabitant of the role has simply changed. But 
When I think about it with the words America, when I think America is dead, long live America, it says something deeper to me. The idea that the dream of America dies over and over again and is reborn over and over again. America is dead, long live America. We hold at this time the tension of two realities. The death of some innocence we may have held, or not. Some of us lost that perhaps long ago. Some innocence about the dream of America, the dream of progress onward and upward forever. And at the same time, the continued work and the ever new beginning of the dream of America. That's what the last two days have felt like to me. Because we in America are both things and always have been. We are the inauguration with a jingoistic speech on Friday, and we are the march with people rising up and joining their voices on Saturday. We are racism and the work against it. We are a country built on the subjugation of whole classes of people, and we are a country built on the dream of equality. I had the chance to visit for the first time the African American Museum uh, on the Mall on Thursday evening. And there's a very powerful part of the museum where you've, you, you, they've taken sort of all of history and put it in one concourse. And you, and you start at the bottom and walk up. And so you've just gone through um, the 15th and 16th centuries. And you've seen really the beginning of the, the idea of um, subjugation of people based on skin color, the beginning of the idea of race, the beginning of the idea of white privilege, which started actually quite locally. Um, It can be traced back to um, concepts and writings in the Chesapeake region in the early uh, 15th century. And so you've walked through um, the beginning of the American colonies and the way that slavery, and specifically race-based slavery, which was different, was part of the founding of that. And as you walk out of that section, you walk into an open space where there on the walls are words from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And you are asked to hold the reality of those two things at the same time. It's a powerful moment, and this weekend has been that moment over and over again for me. It's been a weekend that has reminded me not to feel smug, not to imagine that I am only one of those two kinds of America, but to remember that each of us holds them both within us. I don't mean particularly the the way that I hold racism within me, although surely as a white American raised in this society, I have not escaped the poison of both systemic racism and personal bias. They are part of who I am, and my eternal journey is working against them. But more that that I am within me both the America that has allowed this inauguration and this administration and the America that works against it. 
For me, and perhaps for some of you, there is always a temptation, particularly as a comfortable white American, to look away, to return to normal. What this weekend reminds me of is that I have to always cling to long live America. Not just America is dead, but long live America, and it is my job to bring it into being. We talked in December here at West about the importance of taking space and time to center yourself, whether you find that through mindfulness, through walking in the woods, through laughing, through partying with a disco ball. One of the things I have been doing is looking for the people who help me to feel empowered and making sure I read a little bit of them every day. Facebook, if you're on it, offers lots of opportunities there. I follow some of my colleagues, Meg Riley and Robin Tanner, Kenny Wiley. But there are so many who might give you a sense of hope and possibility. And I think often, too, of music. I grew up in a Unitarian Universalist congregation, and one of my favorite hymns is based on an old American folk hymn called What Wondrous Love Is This? You might know it. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul, oh my soul. Well, it's the second verse that I love. It goes, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, oh my soul, when I was sinking down, sorrows, I'm going to forget this part because it's really the next part that's the better part, sorrows beneath my sorrows ground, see, that's the bad part, friends to me gathered round, oh my soul. The thing I loved about this hymn was that it wasn't about some miraculous other place, something I couldn't quite attain, but about the people who surrounded me, about the experience of being surrounded by friends who bring a wondrous love into our lives. I mentioned that I follow someone named Kenny Wiley on Facebook. He's a Unitarian Universalist, African-American religious educator, one of the founders of Black Lives of UU, which is the black organizing collective within Unitarian Universalism. And he's a great writer and activist. Um, He posted something on Inauguration Day that I particularly liked, and I'd like to read it to you so you can hear his voice and his words. I felt something tonight I wanted to share, a possible answer to that frightening question so many of us have asked since November 8th, what do we do now? I watched President Obama's farewell address with two close friends. We were each nearing 30 when he ran in 2008, our 20s were just starting. Like so many, Obama has long inspired me, pushed me, helped me feel and see what's possible. Having a president with intelligence and wisdom and humor and goodness has meant so much. I am afraid of what's coming. But when he said tonight, I am asking you to believe, not in my ability to bring out change, but in yours, I realized I felt that too. When I say I still believe in this country's possibility, it isn't at heart because we elected Barack Obama. It isn't even just because of Fannie Lou Hamer or Dr. King or Harriet Tubman or so many others. 
It's because of folks I've organized with and marched alongside and learned from in Denver. It's because of those I've prayed with and sung with in UU and other churches all over the country. It's the friends who wouldn't let me give up each time my depression nearly took me down for good. It's the people who wake up early to teach or take their kids to school or look after a parent or grandparent and then stay up late and organize. Being nice or good or kind will not eliminate bigotry. It will not by itself keep Jeff Sessions from becoming Attorney General or keep this impending storm from coming. We need a how and we need tactics. We also need inspiration, that elusive essential thing. We're not going to get that from our national leaders for a while and we may never have another family like the Obamas leading the way. What we can do is look after one another, challenge one another, and help each other to hold on a moment longer, to keep going. I'm going to need you, Kenny finished. I'll do my best to help however I can when you need me. Friends to me gathered round. What does it mean in this moment to be friends to each other? To be friends to America, the dream. What vision do we have for that? When I say we, I mean we in the grandest sense, but I also mean we, this congregation, this community, this place and these people, you. We have started the work of some of that conversation with a resistance task force, as they named themselves, with a community conversation that happened here on Friday afternoon that I know several of you attended, with a sanctuary task force which has been charged by the board with looking into what it would mean to become a sanctuary congregation able to support immigrants facing deportation with ongoing discussions with the board, with the staff, with all of you, who do we want to be? I want to pause just for a side note because I often get questions from folks. Uh, obviously, within ethical culture and Unitarian Universalism as well, the separation of church and state is a long-held and important value. And I often hear from folks saying, uh, it's sort of the, essentially the question is, have you heard of that? Are you aware? Um, and so I want to let you know that I am indeed aware. Um, and, um, and to tell you that I, that I track pretty closely what is and is not allowed. The separation of church and state is particularly geared toward making sure that religious institutions don't interrupt the electoral process, don't unduly affect the electoral process. That's why congregations cannot endorse uh, a particular candidate because the idea is that that would elect, that would affect the electoral process. Well, <clears throat> leave aside those that do. Um, what what congregations can do, and in fact what I think congregations have a vital role to do in the public square, is to speak about policy, right? To take positions on policies that are being voted on. That's perfectly acceptable for congregations to do. It is also, I'm glad to know, perfectly acceptable for congregations to have positions on or speak about specific already elected government officials. 
So we can't influence elections, but once the elections are done, we have a right and a role to play in the public square, talking about those that serve our country. I have never before been so vocal about particular administrations or elected officials and their work. And I'm aware of that change, as I'm sure some of you are as well, perhaps all of you. But I do believe that this is, if not an unprecedented time, at least a key time in American history, both in its potential for horrors and also in its potential for new possibility. And it is almost the latter that makes me most want to speak out that sees mo helps me see most that this congregation has a role to play. That role, I think, holds together multiple needs. The need to connect with those who are different, a real need, a deep one, and one I think we are uniquely positioned to be able to offer with our emphasis on relationship, on listening, on reaching out, on the worth of every person. I heard at our community conversation on Friday our desire to hold that role, to be able to build our own skills in talking with our friends and family, our neighbors, those all across the country who believe differently than we do, those within our congregation who believe differently than we do, right? We are not a monolith. And I think we hold that desire at the same time as holding the need to move forward with the revolution, with the world that we want to create. I know I myself struggle sometimes to balance out the desire to connect with people deeply and the knowledge that we don't really need everybody to come along, <laughs> that sometimes you just have to push forward the revolution. And if some folks are 50 years behind, it's okay. <laughs> You hope they'll join you eventually, but you push forward nevertheless. I'm grateful that this congregation holds people with both of those views. And I will be honest that right now most of me is on the move it forward people place. So I am especially grateful for those of you that remind me about talking and connecting. I thank you for that role you hold here. There is a poem that spoke to that idea of moving forward with the revolution that I wanted to share with you. I'll, I'll warn you that some of the language is not safe for work, um, although I've obviously deemed it safe for my work. Um, and I liked it because it's um, got just the right amount of irreverence for me. <laughs> I hope it might speak to you as well, and you may have seen it before. It's called Revenge. <laughs> There's not that many ethical culture poems, really, that I've shared here that start with the revenge as the title. But <clears throat> So I invite you to hear it with a spirit of um, playfulness. It's called Revenge by Alyssa Chavez. Since you mention it, I think I will start that race war. I could have swung either way, but now I'm definitely spending the next four years converting your daughters to lesbianism. I'm going to eat all your guns, swallow them lock, stock, and barrel, and spit bullet casings onto the dinner table. I'll give birth to an army of mixed-race babies. 
With fathers from every continent and genders to outnumber the stars, my legion of multiracial babies will be intersectional as fuck, and your swastikas will not be enough to save you. Because real talk, you didn't stop the future from coming. You just delayed our coronation. We have the same deviant haircuts we had yesterday. We are still getting gay married like nobody's business because it's still nobody's business. <laughs> There's a Muslim kid in Kansas who's already written the schematic for the robot that will steal your job in manufacturing, and that robot will also be gay, so get used to it. <laughs> We didn't manifest the mountain by speaking its name. The buildings here are not on your side just because you make them spray-painted accomplices. These walls do not have genders, and they all think you suck. Even the earth found common cause with us the way you trample us both. Oh, yeah, there will be signs and rainbow-colored drum circles and folks arguing ideology until even I want to punch them, but I won't because they're my family in that blood of the covenant sense. If you've never loved someone like that, you cannot out-waltz us. We have all the good dancers anyway. I'll confess, I don't know if I'm alive right now. I haven't heard my heart beat in days. I keep holding my breath for the moment the plane goes down and I have to save enough oxygen to get my friends through. But I finally found the argument against suicide and it's us. We're the effigies that haunt America's nights harder the longer they spend burning us. We are scaring the shit out of people by spreading, by refusing to die. What are we but a fire? We know everything we do is so the kids after us will be able to follow something towards safety. What can I call us but lighthouse? Of course I'm terrified. Of course I'm a shroud. And of course it's not fair, but rest assured, anxious America, you brought your fists to a glitter fight. This is a taco truck rally, and all you have is coleslaw. You cannot deport our minds. We won't hold funerals for our potential. We have always been what makes America great. I like that. <laughs> I liked that. I liked Alyssa Chavez's words, and I liked her playfulness. I liked her spirit. I liked that her answer is us. I am not good at looking backward. I'm actually so bad at it that I often forget the things that went wrong in my life. I recently um, saw a posting about a fellowship um, in college that I suddenly remembered I hadn't gotten. I mean, this was many, many years ago, but I forgot I applied for it because I didn't get it, so then you don't want to think about it, you know? Um, and so... For me, the challenging time is when I feel like I get stuck in the past and what I hoped might happen this fall. But the flip side of forgetting everything bad in your life, which is maybe sort of a problem I should work on, um, the flip side is that you're able to cast a new vision quickly. So as long as I don't think about November 8th, as long as I stay in the reality of November 9th and all that has unfolded, I do okay. I do okay because like Alyssa Chavez, I believe in us. I believe in our ability to be not just reactive in this time, but also visionary not just reducing the harm, although that is important, but envisioning an even more amazing world in the future. President Obama wrote a farewell letter, 
And the line that spoke to me most was, when the arc of progress seems slow, remember America is not the project of any one person. The single most powerful word in our democracy is the word we. We, the people, we shall overcome. That's why I love that chant, this is what democracy looks like. Because it does look like the march yesterday, but it also looks like the resistance on ball Friday night. All those children playing in a mess of soapy bubbles. All of us laughing and dancing. It also looks like going shopping at Wegmans to feed your kids and get food on the table for the family. It looks like the federal workers who will be trying to save as much as they can of programs that are being dismantled around them. It looks like the nonprofit folks who are working in solidarity with each other, who are crossing lines and remembering to be intersectional in ways they have not before. It looks like us taking care of our kids and calling our congresspeople and talking to our neighbors and our families. It looks like us remembering that we are in charge of this country and we cannot fall asleep at the wheel. And the good news for us, for a congregation like ours and others like it, is that we are really good at making things up. We do it all the time. We make meaning. We make ritual. We make up whole religions. <laughs> we create them and live them and love them into being. We are surrounded today by pictures of our heroes, of visionaries throughout the country and the world and the fictional world as well. Next week, we'll talk specifically about heroes, about the role that they play in our lives, both the ones we dream up and remember and the ones we see every day at work and on the bus and in the grocery store. When I think about the experience yesterday at the march, the images and video I have seen from around the world, I am so grateful for the reminder of our strength, our power. There is a lot of work to do, but what yesterday told me is we can do it. If we keep on showing up if we keep on listening, if we step forward and step back so all the voices are heard, if we do not look away, if we continue to build the vision and love it into being. Susan Cooper, one of my favorite fantasy writers, wrote this. For remember, her character said, it is altogether your world now. You and all the rest, we have delivered you from evil, but the evil that is inside men is at last a matter for men to control. The responsibility and the hope are in your hands, your hands and the hands of the children of all on this earth. The future cannot blame the present just as the present cannot blame the past. The hope is always here, always alive, but only your fierce caring can fan it into a fire to warm the world. 
For Drake is no longer in his hammock, children, nor is Arthur somewhere sleeping. And you may not lie idly expecting the second coming of anybody now, because the world is yours and it is up to you. Or as my colleague Cynthia Landrum put it, okay, that's done. What's next? I want to wear my hat again.